Yo, what up, everybody? This is Tyler. This is Danny. And we're back to another distance recording. So that's going to be fun. I actually have COVID. So fucking yippee. It's been <laughs> great. We, I don't know. We were just talking about it off air. It hasn't been the worst for me, but like, I don't know. It sucks sitting around homesick. So I'm not going to tell you, but you know, better safe than sorry, right? That's right. That's right. So, yeah, if things are a little bit more disjointed than usual today, it's uh, not because we're that stoned. It's because we're that far away from each other. Right. Just on the other side of town. But, you know, a safe distance away. That's right. Yeah. Don't need to be infecting you. But we also weren't going to take like another week off with fucking spooky season going underway. Uh, No way, man. We're right in the midst of Halloween. Shit, yeah, I'm fucking excited about it, too. I mean, we didn't officially say anything or put anything out on the channel. You guys probably noticed that, like, there was a week that we skipped. It's because we went and watched a movie because it was, like, our last good chance to go catch the new Nick Cage Sansono film. And I'm glad we did. I'm glad we did, too. It was a good time. It just also wasn't horror enough for us to come back and, like, lay something down about it. That's very true. And we had gone and seen it at a, I mean, it wasn't like super late, but for recording, it, it could have gone late depending on how much we had to say, had it been horror related. Yeah, but it was still just too, I don't know, neo-Western to fucking escape from New York. Exactly. It had elements here and there, but not enough, really, I think, to garner the uh, the horror genre tag. No, no, no. It had some creepy bits, but that's about it. Before we get too far into this, I suppose we can start our green hits. It feels weird hitting the green hits distance, but uh, I guess what are you about to smoke on, Danny? (laughs) Okay, well, actually, I've got it lit up, although most of our listeners probably can't hear it, but I do have a old trusty strain we we both like, and that is the Jack Harrow strain. So no stranger to the podcast, but for those who don't know, this is a sativa-dominant marijuana strain, of course. It combined a haze hybrid with a Northern Lights number five and Shiva Skunk Cross. So with this, I did pick it up over at Stokes, actually. So this is a hand-rolled oh, that I'm puffing on. Yeah, and they clock in right around 23.5% on their jack. And I did pack a little bit. I did bring out my vape just because it's a special occasion. I did bring in some white OG for my vaporizer. And with that being said, white OG or also known as white OG Kush is an Indica marijuana uh, strain and it is crossed uh, with the white and SFV OG Kush strains. And uh, with this, it has an aroma of earthy pine and lemon as well as white heavy trichome coverage. It looks like it won the 2010 and 2014 cannabis cup. So that's pretty neat. And this one over at Stokes comes in right at uh, 24%. So I've tried it. I like it. It's a heavy hitter. I might have to wait a little bit later on before I get into that. I need to get my ass back over to Stokes, you know, once I can leave my apartment. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah, today, oh, I actually loaded up my vape as well. And then I also actually have a bowl loaded just to like top myself off later when I need to. Hell yeah. Look, to be honest, with some of the brain fog I've been dealing with, I have been getting like a little stone through the week. I have almost not been able to tell because it's like my head's kind of fucking muddy anyway. But today's today's been the clearest day. So it's actually been a lot more fun to get high today. Nice. Hell yeah. But I just got some Montana silver tip going on. If y'all listen a lot, you know that it's my favorite strain. 
it's some granddaddy perps with a super silver haze, nice and sort of berry flavored, just barely the sativa side of right down the middle. I fucking love the shit. That's awesome, dude. It's a great strain. Now, before we get into, we we are going to end up talking about Cemetery Man today, but while we're still sort of in like the green hit section, I did just want to bring up fucking Squid Game real quick because I know you're most of the way through it now. That's right. And I fucking watched it. And Danny, how the fuck is something this akin to Battle Royale as popular as it is with like every fucking demographic across the board? Well, when you had initially told me how popular it is, that already intrigued me enough to like want to check it out. If nothing else, at least see a trailer. And so, yeah. I jumped on board, watched the first episode. And I was like, all right, let me see where else this is going. So needless to say, I can see some of the appeal with the characters and the way that without spoiling too much, you know, it, it keeps you wanting more and keeps you guessing what's going to happen with these characters. Yeah, There's kind of um, an indirect mystery there, right? Like exactly. And there's some other characters that are involved kind of from the outside coming in mm-hmm. that makes it interesting as well. So that alone, if you take away some of the violence and things like that, it still makes for a good mystery, kind of like, you know, drama and all this other stuff. So I can see the appeal there. But what surprises me is some of the violence and uh, gore that you do get to see. And just the weirdness? Yeah, no, no, it's South Korean. So this might sound a little odd, (laughs) but considering all the films that we reviewed, I don't think it's it's too far-fetched to say that when you introduce uh, maybe people who aren't familiar with Asian cinema, that there's going to be some weird stuff going on that you might not be familiar with. But we enjoy that kind of stuff. Shit, yeah. Like, from the get-go, I've been saying, oh, I fucking love this. I just don't understand how it's so popular. Because it feels more like it was made for us. That's what makes it surprising. Anyway... I can't recommend it enough. I can't wait to hear what you mm. say when you get to the end of it. I just wanted to yeah, bring it already, up because it is so, it's so close to things that we have talked about on this show. It's oddly familiar and at home for our podcast. But with that being said, just because of what you told me and, you know, my watching it, I've already recommended it to a few people as well. So I can see why it's popular. Yeah, no, I, uh, like I said, there's stuff about the end of it that I don't know if it's going to warrant bringing up on the podcast, but I definitely want to talk to you about once you get there. Mm. Um, okay, that's awesome. Including some some trepidation for the possible future of it. but Okay, okay. I am curious. You said earlier you were on like episode five or something. Have you gotten to the uh, to the famous Korean actor name drop yet? I don't know about name drop. But you told me that there was somebody who makes a cameo, and I believe I know who it is. Okay. Well, there's also and, there's a name drop coming up soon. Like if you oh, haven't, no, no, then I, I haven't heard the name drop. If yeah, if you haven't gotten to the name drop yet, like you, you'll laugh out loud because it'll be a name that you All recognize. Right. You'll be like, oh shit, okay. I know exactly who they're talking about. That's funny. Okay, no, 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 I haven't, I haven't gotten there. I'm pretty sure it'd be obvious if that's the case. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 You'd be like, oh, shit. I know him. Nice. Hell yeah. All right. Off of Squid Game, off of our fucking green hits, I suppose. Actually, I'm going to take a hit, but 
<laughs> yeah, we'll uh, we'll move off of green hits and go on to our guts and bolts, I suppose. Guts and bolts. All right, guts and bolts. Cemetery man, della morte, della more. Let's see. This is where we tell you who and what went into the movie. Keep a little spoiler free. And to start that off, I will go with a spoiler free setup. Oh, Jesus. I'm not sure what counts as a spoiler when you really get down to the nuts and bolts of this movie. But I guess a an undertaker slash just like cemetery man. Yeah. At a at a cemetery in a little town is trying to find love while fending off zombies. <laughs> like that's that's the easiest setup for this movie, right? Without spoiling anything. It's an Italian rom zomcom. We we've talked yeah. about rom zomcoms before. We have. But not one like this. Because <laughs> not quite like this. Italians. Yeah, I don't know. I think that's going to be about the best I can set it up. Who do we got going into this, Danny? Yeah, no worries. So, of course, from week to week, we like to talk about the people who go into making the film and the actors and actresses in front of the cameras. And this week, our director is a gentleman I'm very familiar with. There's a big, bad reason why. This gentleman, his name is Michele Suave. He's a gentleman who's worked with Dario Argento on several films. And just to name a few, he actually got noticed because he helped on the documentary Dario Argento's World of Horror back in 1985. And because of that, he went on to direct such films as Stage Fight back in 1987. He's directed the film The Church, which actually on the DVD of that. He also directed 1991's The Sect, which is a film I've been kind of chasing after a little bit. Mm. And he's, he's done a couple of films, such things as The Goodbye Kiss, Blood of the Losers. He's done some television. More recently, such things as Macari from this year. He's in an episode of that. That's an Italian show. And he did six episodes of a TV miniseries. It was called While I Was Away. So oh, okay. he's also an actor. I did want to mention that too. He was in a film we've actually reviewed, and that was Dario Argento's opera, where he played Inspector Daniel Suave. Oh, sweet. Yeah, yeah, and he's been in a bunch of other films as well. I mean, you know, he's directing this, so I'll save it to whenever we get to him acting. Well, I was going to say, did we did we bring him up during opera, not just because of that, but because he was also, like, second unit director, or do we get that deep into the credits on that one? I don't know if we did, but you're right. He actually was a second unit director in an opera. I did mark that down, but it's worth noting. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> okay, so our writers on this, the novel... Same name, Della Morte Della Mora, was written by Tiziano Slavi. And something interesting about that, just because we're in this section, it's not really a spoiler, it's more of a trivia kind of thing, but that story, Della Morte Della Mora, was based off of a kind of a crossover, if you if you will, I suppose. There was a Dark Horse comic strip called uh, Dylan Dog. You might be familiar with that. Yeah, I was going to say, Dylan Dog, I think... I mean, I think Dark Horse currently has the rights, but I, it started. Mm -hmm. he, I don't think he started I mean, with Italian, Dark Horse. Right. Yeah, right. Dylan Dog is the second highest, most selling comic in Italy's history. That's wild, but I mean, it makes sense. It's Italian, so. and the characters of Dylan Dog and Francesco Della More, Della Morte, uh, mm -hmm. have crossed over. 
we haven't gotten to the actors yet, but Rupert Everett was the visual inspiration for Dylan. I know. How how (laughs) interesting is that? I mean, there's some really interesting things about this film, but we'll kind of get a little bit more into that, I guess, in the next section, because I've got some stuff a little bit more on the novel and uh, that particular like crossover. But did want to mention that. All right. And this uh, movie actually plays out closer to a Dylan Dog comic than the actual Dylan Dog movie did. I have heard that as well, which I think we'll probably get into that because I heard Brandon Ralph was yes. in that. that yeah, awesome. yeah. Um, he's amazing. I think it was just a really crap script to work with because that movie was oh, I mean, uh, you can't help that. I'm good. <laughs> so I'm not going to knock him. He's a good actor. All right. The screenplay was written by Johnny Ramoli. Another gentleman who's actually worked with Argento on such films as the film Trauma. He's also worked on the films His Secret Life, the film Facing Windows, and the film 20 Cigarettes. The cinematographer on this is Mauro Marchetti. He's worked on the films Forever Mary, Boys on the Outside, and The Invisible Wall. The editor is a gentleman we've actually talked about before, again, because of episode 49 when we talked about opera. But that gentleman is Franco Fraticelli. And Franco, another gentleman's got some really cool films. His name, another guy. I mean, when you look at Argento's films, you can start with his first Giallo, actually, The Bird with the Crystal Plumage. He also helped on The Cat of Nine Tails. Big surprise there. He's also helped on such things as Deep Red, which is really awesome. He's also helped on Suspiria, another film we reviewed. He's also helped on Tenebra. Like I said, mostly all your Argento films, Phenomena. He's helped on (laughs) Demons and Demons 2, which are some films I think we'll eventually get around to. He's also helped on Suave's The Church and The Sect. He's also helped on The Monster. And uh, let's see here. I think one of the last things he did was Maria Jose Leotamo Regina, which is a TV movie in 2002. Uh, Speaking of Demons, just just because those movies keep coming up with some of these people's credits, did you see what this movie was released as in Japan? Mm-mm. Demons 95. Really? Yeah. That's funny, man. Because <laughs> the church is considered Demons 3. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, you know, it's one of those things. I know the Italians like doing that, and in this case, Japanese people do too. All right. The music was composed by Ricardo Biseo. I don't believe he was credited. I think he went uncredited, but a few things of note from him maybe did. Hidden Assassin, Silent Trigger, and Tell of the Mummy. And Manuel de Sica, he helped with Icicle Thief in the film Segaloid. Uh, this was produced by Heinz Bibo, Tilda Corsi, Johnny Ramoli, and uh, Michele Sove. Distributed by uh, Distribuzione Angelo Rizzoli, Cinematographica, that was released for the 1994 Italian theatrical release. It had a release date March 25th, 1994, in Italy, and I do have a tagline. And that is zombies, guns, and sex. Oh, my. You know what? That's also a really good uh, warning, but we're not there yet. (laughs) Are we getting there? Are we getting close? All right. So moving into our cast, the gentleman you've already mentioned, but Rupert Everett, he does play the role of Francesco Della Morte. And a few things to note from this gentleman, like so he's got some uh, really cool credits to his name. Most notably, actually, after this film, he starred in 1997's film, My Best Friend's Wedding. Some people might recognize him in 1998's Shakespeare in Love. Some people also might recognize him in the movie Bee, Monkey. He was in uh, 1999's Inspector Gadget. He was in A Midsummer's Night's Dream in 1999 as well. 
You might have heard his voice as Sloan Blackburn in the Wild Thornberry movie from 2002. He was also Prince Charming in uh, Shrek Part 2. Yeah, I think from Shrek 2 on. I think anytime Prince Charming shows up, I think it's him. I think you're right, because I see him in Part 3. Yeah, he was in Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children. And he's got a couple of things coming up, a film called Warning, My Policeman, and Lead Heads. He's also been in a bunch of television as well. Uh, I think most notably, probably stuff like, I don't know, The Name of the Rose and Adult Material. That's more recently. Mm. He's done some stage work as well, so no surprise there. All right, we have Francois Haji Lazaro plays the role of Nagi. A few films of note from him. He was in the film Beatrice. A film I've actually watched, I think I've mentioned before, because Ron Perlman's in it, and that film is The City of Lost Children. Oh, yeah. Still highly recommend that one. And another film you and I have actually talked about possibly getting into sometime soon is uh, Brotherhood of the Wolf. Oh, yeah. I I fucking dig some Brotherhood of the Wolf, so. Nice. All right. We have Anna Falchi, who plays the role of she. She also has two other roles that she plays. One is Laura, and the other one's kind of an assistant to the mayor. Yes. Okay. A few films of note from her. She was in the film Celluloid. She was in the film Paparazzi and the film The Tracker. All right, we have Mickey Knox. He plays the role of Marshall Sternario, which is the detective or the inspector in right. the film. All right, he was in the film I Walk Alone, The Tenth Victim, and he was also in The Godfather Part Three. All right, I have Anton Alexander. He plays the role of Franco. He was in the film King David. You might have seen him in Romeo and Juliet from 2013. He was in Exodus, Gods and Kings, and the film Taboo. All right, we have Fabiano Formica. She played the role of Valentina Scanarotti, which is the mayor's daughter. She was in the television series Don Mateo from 2011. She was also part of Nero Wolf television show from 2012 and the film High Death. All right, we have Clive Richet. He plays the doctor, uh, Vercesi in the film. <laughs> he was in the film Casanova. He was in the television series Rome from 2007. He was also in Virgin Territory and the film Romeo and Juliet from 2013. We have Stefano Masciarelli. He plays the role of Mayor Scanarotti. He was in the film uh, Tequila and Bonetti. He was also in the television series Donna Detective from 2007 through 2010. You have Alessandro Zamatillo. He plays the role of Claudio. This is really his only film of note. Okay. All right. We have Katja Anton. She plays the role of Claudio's girlfriend. Once again, only film of note. Uh, here's a lady we've actually talked about before. She played, well, she actually went uncredited, but uh, I thought well, it was kind of interesting. While, while you're pulling her up real quick, I just wanted to back up really quickly to Mickey Knox because there's something about him that seemed really familiar to me. So I was... While you were naming off some of the stuff, I started trying to go a little bit deeper in his filmography just to make sure that there wasn't something I knew him from. Right, right, right. And instead, I ran into this great little bit of trivia that probably pretty well known by this point that Quentin Tarantino wrote Natural Born Killers. Mm -hmm. Woody Harrelson's character was named after Mickey Knox. No kidding. Oh, well, that makes sense. Mickey. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Damn, Damn, that's crazy. Because, well... As we all know, mm. Tarantino has a deep and abiding love, love for spaghetti westerns. There you go. And Mickey yeah. Knox, one of the things he would do is adapt Italian screenplays in, into English translations. That is awesome. Including he did the English translation for The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Hey, that tracks. Everything tracks what you're saying. 
So go figure. Wow. I had no idea. That's really fucking cool. I'm telling you, man, this is what happens when we're doing these films. So the rule, well, actually, let me bring up the actress. So Barbara, mm-hmm. her last name, uh, Barbara Kopisti, she plays the role of Magda in this film. She's uh, one of the gals a little bit later on, one of the college girls. But she was in opera, and the role that she played was Signora Albertini in the film. Now, she was also in the films, which is actually really cool, The New York Ripper, which is a Lucio Fulci film. She was in Stage Fright, which is a Michele Soivi film. She's also in The Church. Some people might have seen her in Flight from Paradise. She's been in a couple of different television shows and stuff like that, mostly in Italy. Yeah, I think she kind of fell out of acting back in 2001 and two, but I thought it was kind of neat. All right, we have two other people, and that kind of rounds out our cast and crew. I have Patricia Punto. She plays Claudio's mother. She was in the film The Church, and we have Renato Donis, who plays She's Husband. And uh, yeah, that pretty much rounds out our cast and crew. I know you gave us a brief setup of what the film entails. She get into some warnings. Warnings. A bit of gun violence with some decent blood effects to go along with it. That's true. Zombies. Yes, there's some nakedness. Some nakedness. Some mentions of sexual assault. Yes, that's very true. That could trigger some some emotions. Especially because it's fucked up. But (laughs) Oh man, is it? Damn. Is there much beyond that, though? Is that pretty much it? Everything that we just named? Uh, no, I mean, there's some, there's some imagery that could be disturbing to, for some people. And I don't mean, it goes beyond like death per, I, well, I might've already said it, <laughs> but <laughs> and I don't mean like the, uh, the act of killing. I mean like an embodiment, I suppose, of death. Oh, okay. oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I get what you're saying. Yeah. 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 Death appears. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. That might startle some people or maybe throw some people off. I don't know why, but, you know, it, it might. Yeah, and it's kind of a weird warning, but, like, I already mentioned that this is an action, I mean, not an action, a horror comedy, but it's kind of a really thinky horror comedy. A little yeah, bit more existential and not so much, mm-hmm. like, laugh out loud. Right, right, right. And, and I think that's the thing to know when we do say the word comedy, because it's not always like, yeah, laugh out loud or, you know, like make your sides hurt or anything like that. I mean, sometimes it's dark. Yeah. Like, and like, this is funny, but I don't think it got any more than like an actual chuckle out of me. Exactly. It's like, I'm not going to sit here and belt and have tears come out my eyes because I'm laughing, but for others, it might, I don't know. It's subjective. Yeah. Agreed. I don't know. Is that, can I, can you think of anything else now that, cause now that we covered death, I don't think so. I mean, until we get to it, I don't think so. Yeah, no, I think that sounds good. Let's, uh, I suppose let's get into it then. We'll, uh, we'll find out how Cemetery Man made us squeal. How does that make you squeal? All right, Cemetery Man. Now, you had seen this before, right? I had. Because you own it, right? I do. (laughs) (laughs) So that helps, you know. I guess, like, because this was this was the first time for me, so I guess I'm curious how long have you been sitting on this one? <laughs> uh, well, as far as owning the copy that I have now, I've only owned it for a few years, but I've known about the film close to ooh, 15, 16 years, something like that. Okay, cool. It was it was one of those things. Once again, when I was getting into film collecting and hanging out with you know my friends and 
going to record stores and what have you. My buddy Ralph actually bought a copy of this film and that's how I learned about it because he and I watched it together. We would normally like pick up a few films, whatever, make some chili or whatever the fuck, have some drinks and yeah, check out the films. And so that's how I learned about it. And I've been kind of seeking a copy since and sometimes it can go for a little bit more than I want to spend, mm-hmm. but I came across a copy which I feel like, okay, I got to jump on it because the price is good. It's a good copy, what have you. So I've watched this film probably a total of, I'd say two times tops uh, prior to going into the weekend and reviewing this film. Dude, this was a good one. I kind of wish I had watched it on a week where I was a little bit more together to, to pay attention even a little bit harder, but I fucking dug it, man. That's awesome, dude. I'm glad to hear that. Now, that being said, like trying to fucking think of what this goddamn film... I'll tell you what, so what this reminded me, this is going to be a little bit overblown of a statement, not quite, not quite accurate, but I think you're going to understand what I'm getting at. This flick feels like right after Fulci got done making the beyond, he had a vision of the future and went, oh, Dead Alive is a great movie. I bet I could do a version of that. (laughs) I mean, it, it, it has some elements of that, dude. It really does. It, I, mean, you're, I think you're right with saying full tree because that has connotations alone, you know? Yeah, because like I know that a lot of these people worked a shit ton with Argento, mm-hmm. but this doesn't feel as straightforward as Argento's stuff does to me usually. But it, I agree. But it still feels very Italian. Without a doubt. Or at least very Italian horror. I don't know if it feels very Italian in general, but, but you no, know, I, I think you're right with the Italian horror aspect of it. it. It was one of those films too, where Michaela was breaking away. Oh, not necessarily because of, of any indifference or any, anything like that or internal drama or what have you with Argento. He was just wanting to do his own thing. And he came across this project along with several other people. And yeah, so the, there might be a little bit of that feel like it's a departure from some of the shit that Argento was known for. Like you said, more of a straightforward approach where this has, yeah, a little bit of like the Bava and the full feel. And I've even heard some people say Fellini, mm. uh, which is interesting, but it, it does have a very, and sometimes it feels art house a little bit. Well, I was going to say, so oh. if we want to deep, like jump right into the deep end on this, does Francesco exist? Yeah, or is he actually Franco? I'm saying that's a good question because you can debate that. And and are Francesco, Nagi, and Franco all the same person? You could say yes because there's strong arguments for it. Because I don't think there's a very it, it almost it almost follows once again the unreliable narrator. You know. Yeah. Especially because he's at odd ends and you don't know what he's telling you if it's accurate or not. Well, that's the thing. I I kind of dig that this movie, it doesn't have like a hard like moment of twist or reveal. But by the time you get to the end, you've kind of put all the pieces together and realized just how wild and surreal it all actually was. Absolutely. Because in the beginning, it seems just like a really good horror comedy setup. This guy works in a cemetery, and having to deal with zombies raising from the dead and attacking him is just a really 
super mundane, everyday occurrence, and nobody believes him. That's a great horror comedy setup. And you could almost chalk that up as like, it could be slapstick. Yes. That's kind of what reminded me of like Dead Alive. You know what I mean? It's just this this very mundane way of trying to deal with this craziness (laughs) that's going on. Absolutely, man. But as you get further and further into the flick, weird things continue to happen. And you kind of have to stack all of that on top of each other. And you can kind of look back at the beginning of the flick and be like, oh, maybe that's not a horror comedy setup. Maybe that's he's not in his fucking right mind and none of this is actually even happening setup. I think that's a good way of looking at it, too. I don't know. I skipped super deep into that to start making that observation, but it's it's hard to talk about this movie as a like you could talk about this movie straight through, but that important stuff kind of happens at the end and it does it reframes how you have to think about some of this stuff once you've seen it all. Right. I think what helps at least I want to because I, I can't give you one hundred percent concrete answers because I think this movie's too subjective for that kind of resolve. But Something that helped me make a little bit more some sense of, I suppose, out of this film is knowing what it's based on, you know, with Dylan Dog and the whole Delamorte Delamore story. Mm-hmm. And Rupert Everett even talked about it. There was an interview I watched where he said, you know, for, for somebody who is unfamiliar with that story or those novels, this film is going to be seem a little wackadaisy, you know, like wackadoo. Because it's so strange, it's so odd. But if you think of it kind of like in a comic strip come to life, he says, um, not that it makes more sense, but you can kind of see what they were trying to do and why there's weirdness and all this kind of strange, you know, things going on in the film. Um, And I I appreciate it for that because it's like, okay, I can kind of of see what they're trying to do. You know, it's not an easy thing to try to – you know, bring a comic book to life on the screen. We already talked about that. Like you can do a really bad job of doing it if you don't do it right. Mm-hmm. You know, but uh, I don't know. I, I don't know enough about Dylan Dog and or the, you know, Della Morte character to say whether or not they did it justice, but. Um, yeah, I don't know either. I, I've i never know? actually read much Dylan Dog. I'm familiar with who the character is and, and like the big place he has in uh, like comic book culture, just sort of in general, but. Yeah, but to, to what you were saying earlier, too, it's just the whole fact that that Del Morte character was based off of Rupert Everett in the first place is kind of strange and odd, you know, to think that when it was being adapted to to the screen, that he was casting that part anyway. You know, like that's pretty that's pretty remarkable, man. It's kind of interesting within itself, you know. Yeah, I agree. How do we want to go through this? Do we want to we want to just start from the beginning and sort of lay down what happens? I mean, we can kind of do like sometimes what we do, because I think there's a lot that's going on in this film, but we can just do like bare bones, just kind of run through it. Bare right. Bones so, it. Yeah, well, the bare bones is kind of like, cool, bear, this guy works at a cemetery. It's almost a daily occurrence that he's having to deal with some sort of undead because he's noticed that people buried in the cemetery come back to life within seven days. Exactly. Or people from the town in general, because the world beyond doesn't seem to exist. But that's something else to comment on. (laughs) Oh, Uh, we will definitely. Yeah, exactly. We'll definitely get into that. So he spends his time kind of being just like hanging out in the cemetery with his homeboy Nagi. 
and calling up his friend Franco, who also kind of doesn't believe that this shit is happening, but is kind of just willing to like roll with it and be like, oh shit, what are you doing? Oh, okay, that's cool. Whatever. So where were we? I know. It's almost like he'll patronize him enough just to hear him out. Let's see. A dude gets buried and he takes a shine to the widow because hot damn. I know, right? He describes her as the most beautiful living woman (laughs) and he wonders if he'll ever see her again. Oh, yeah. Can we? (laughs) I got to stop that here for a second. Like he he talks about it a little bit more explicitly later in the movie. But like, I wonder how many people see the Italian name for this movie and don't realize the joke or like the play or like the play on words that's going on and how they might as well have named this guy fucking Mr. Necromantic. Uh, Precisely. (laughs) Yeah. Of death, of love. Yeah, anyway. I mean, it's. I think you're right. The use of word, and I think it's it's clever. But yeah, I, it might be lost in translation. I don't know. So he starts trying to unsuccessfully hit on her, but that's okay because when she comes back, he mentions the ossuary, and she gets real hot at ossuaries. Apparently, she certainly does. They end up kissing, which ends up leading to more. But then. She gets attacked by her risen husband or risen ex-husband. I mean, it's till death do us part and he's dead now. So, (laughs) yeah, thinking that she's dead, he starts grieving, hoping that she doesn't come back. She comes back. He kills her like he's been doing with all the other undead, only to later find out that when she comes back again, that he accidentally actually killed her because she didn't actually die the first time. Anyway, <laughs> All right. in between what, what in between like school bus full of cub scouts gets killed. Oh my gosh. That's just hilarious. His homeboy Nagi ends up like hitting on the mayor's daughter who is weirdly about it before she gets puked on. We'll go back to Claudia, some of these things, yeah. but Right. But yeah, there's some there's some odd shit going on with that alone. <laughs> God, where am I at? Like, this is all. Uh, all right. So what I've got written down is the bikers get into an accident along with it because of the accident. There were those scouts you had mentioned. Right, right, right. And later on, they come back to attack Nagi and Francesco. Yes. Yeah. Which is an interesting and then also amongst all that stuff, that's when... Oh, the, and that wreck also kills the mayor's daughter. Yes. And then Nagi ends up exhuming her head, and they kind of start a relationship. Yes. Eventually, the detective comes around wondering about shit, but while he's there, the mayor comes around because he's in the middle of a political campaign and he wants to use his daughter's death as part of his campaign. Um, yes, that's true. He thinks he hears her, goes and gets killed by her disembodied head. <laughs> yes. At which point that night he rises and has to get put down, which leads Francesco to have to throw up some barbed wire around the place. While throwing up barbed wire, he meets the new mayor and his new mayor's secretary, who looks exactly like the widow that he accidentally loved and killed. 
Right. True. <laughs> this is where it starts to get like so fucked up. If that's not already fucked up enough. So they start into a relationship kind of weirdly. It's like love at first sight because of for her, it's like past feelings that she didn't know she had for him. And, you know, him obviously because she's a lookalike. Yeah. But it's partially because we've skipped over this part entirely, even though it's actually really important to the plot. The entire town thinks he's impotent. Yes. And she can only fall in love with an impotent man because she's terrified of hard cocks. Precisely. It's a phobia of hers. Penetration. So (laughs) he goes to get castrated by the local doctor who won't do right. it, but will instead essentially chemically castrate him for a temporary a amount month. of time. Yeah. When oh. he, so he's like, all right, like, let's do that. And he goes back for her to show oh. up. This part is fucking wild. It is, man. It's so fucked up. <laughs> to find out, oh God, to find out that she got raped by the new mayor, but... It's okay because that's how she found out she's no longer scared of hard cock. Right. She said it wasn't the violence. It was the sex part because, you know, right after they did it slow and, you know, so she can enjoy it. (laughs) Yeah. But what does she say? She says, like, they did it again for him to make it up to her or something like that. Yeah. What the what are you talking about? Yes, exactly. So, but with that, that being the said, point is, is now that she's no longer afraid of hard cock and Francesco is impotent, she can no longer marry him, but is instead going to marry the mayor. Right. But they can still have the same relationship. She pretty much friends on them. Well, it's even weirder because they're basically, she's like the mayor also knows and it's okay if we keep doing what we do. So they're kind of in like, a romantic thruple now. Yeah, it's a tryst in a way. Mm-hmm. Maybe not yeah, a full-on thruple, but like, yeah. Right, 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 right. But, you know, the mayor's cool, and as long as Della Morte's cool, she's cool. So he's all fucking depressed, runs uh, into yeah. a couple college chicks, one of whom is another double to Look her. Right. <laughs> yeah. They convince him to give them a ride home where he goes and hooks up with her double only to find out that she's a prostitute and that he's mm-hmm. expected to pay, even though he was so stoked that he just got done like fucking three. banging her out three times, even though he's supposed to be chemically castrated. Right. Right. <laughs> so he burns the place down as a result. However, he then finds out that his friend Franco well, he did kill his wife and child, right? And then attempted suicide. Yes. But he also yes. finds out that Franco is took the blame or the credit for some of the killings that Francesco did. Yes, and that's what Francesco does is to confront him about that. He confronts him about that, all while killing like a nun, a doctor, and a nurse. <laughs> <laughs> Only to be told that Franco doesn't know who he is and yeah, to go away. So Del Morte decides to take him and Nagi and finally leave the town and go see the rest of the world. On their way out, they go through a long-ass tunnel, only to come out the other side having to break before going off a cliff 
as the highway disappears into basically like a mountain lake. Exactly. And just like endless wilderness. Uh, yeah, they just kind of cabin in the woods, that shit. Nagi gets hurt during the emergency break, only to seemingly die or come close to it. Francesco takes out a gun, loads up two bullets, presumably to put Nagi out of his misery, and then end himself as they found out that there is nothing beyond the town. He basically gives up doing it when Nagi comes to, and for the first time in the film, instead of saying simply, nah, nah. he asks him if they can go home, to which Francesco replies, nah. And he helps gather him up, and it seems like they start to head back. That's the yeah, quickest some, way of explaining it. Like we skipped some really important shit. Like I didn't even mention course, him meeting but that's death. Just, that's just bare bones stuff, man. <laughs> How is the bare bones that fucking complicated? I know because someone be like, "All right, you gonna have to run that. You gonna have to run that back again." Because I was what? <laughs> I was like, "Dude, we didn't even get to the nitty gritty, like the the ceiling of this film. That's just the outside layer." All right, so that's the bare bones. So what is the shit that we actually want to talk about from in here? Because there is some fucking wild shit that happens. Oh, without a doubt. I'm trying to think, how do I want it to start? I think the first thing I kind of want to point out is that Francesco is kind of dumb. (laughs) Yeah, he is. He's not as bright as he thinks he is. And we get a lot of, like, narration from him through the movie, but as you're paying attention to some of the shit that he says, it sounds like he's trying to make like a real deep, like philosophical, like insights at times. But he's also just dumb or not exactly. understanding what's going on. Like he describes Nagi as having like he has a real passion for dead leaves instead of like noticing this wind is undoing all the fucking hard work that Nagi was just trying to get done. Precisely. Yeah, he just talks it up as something entirely different. Or like, he's only ever read two books. One he quit before finishing, and the other is the phone book. Dude. And then gets kind of disappointed when Nagi burns their old phone book with the trash because they got a new one because he's insist on it being a classic. I mean, like, this is a classic. I mean, I, I kind of understand why he's saying that, but in context, it's like, it's just a phone book, dude. But that's the thing. It's like, when you start thinking, like, okay, how much of this is really happening? Like, we're talking about, like, getting rid of people in a way when you're getting rid of a phone book, which is something that they're kind of having to deal with every day. And I, mean, I get it. There's a theme. There's a couple of themes that run throughout this film. I mean, life and death and love and loss. You know, yes. which are a part of what we just talked about right there, life and death. You know, there's a process, there's a cycle to all of this. And I find it interesting how he's weaving this, or the, you know, whether it's Michele or the writers themselves. It's, uh, it's interesting and the, visually it's interesting. And like what you're kind of getting at, which I think I'm starting to lean towards as well is, these characters, Franco, Nagi, and even the detective, the townspeople, you could say they're all just figments of whether it's Francesco or Franco, whomever, this character is probably an expression of, of this person's split personalities or it's just his overall feelings or this, these stages of, of who he is. Mm-hmm. 
you know, you could say just a projection. These characters are projections of how he perceives himself or how he deals with the real world or what have you. I think my first time through this movie, I came away with a feeling that Nagi might be closer to what he really is, except Nagi's probably actually a serial killer and Francesco is kind of how he sees himself. But after the second watch through, I'm like, oh, he's probably actually Franco and a combination of Francesco and Nagi is kind of how he sees himself. I could see that too. That would make sense. You know, these vicarious things going on, you know, especially cause that would a little bit more help explain how like the M3 form did end up getting filled out. Right. Right. And I even the murders, the murderous side of them. Yep. The murders. I mean, here's the thing. This isn't a film where you can just say, oh, this character doesn't exist. Like every time he's on screen, it's just a figment of his imagination. All these characters exist in the movie. It's just that the movie doesn't make sense unless you think of it as more of an allegory. I think that's a good way of looking at that. Or at least trying to make sense of, of what we're seeing on screen. Because like, I feel like the woman continually showing up looking the same is like a trope that we usually ascribe to more like serial killers, right? Mm, yeah, 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 yeah. They're, they're trying to either turn the, the victim into the same thing or they think of the victim in the same way. It, it's why they're picking out the victim. Yeah, which is, it's odd, but it's true. It's a motif, if you will. Yeah, because then you have the weird thing like fucking Franco ends up in the hospital after the suicide attempt. And he's damaged then to the point where the other two switch, which can also kind of make sense if, like, he's now a fucking comatose patient and not able to live out that life anymore. You know what I mean? This, yeah, dude. The, the Francesco persona that he thought he was putting forth, or the way that he saw himself in his mind, no longer pertains because he's now fucking stuck in a hospital bed. So now he is nah. Yeah, he's more of the, yeah, exactly, the nah character. <laughs> Which I think that's interesting. All right, here, here's something, uh, because it's easy to do with these, some of these films, it's just jumping around. But I want to make mention of something I caught the last go around watching the film, take my notes and all the good stuff. It's something that's easy maybe to miss early on. Is It's actually during the opening credits. Is Francesco has a snow globe. And he turns it upside down, you know, mm-hmm. and it lets the snow fall and all that stuff like a snow globe does. And at the end of the film, what do we get is them in a snow globe. Oh, yeah. So it makes me wonder, too, if all of this is just just going on inside this little bubble, you know, like, is this even uh, going on at all? You know, is it just right? These, or is these two this, characters. Is this all in the head? Yeah, I mean that's what I'm saying. It's just, it's just, it could be just imagination. It's just somebody's imagination. They took these characters inside that snow globe and ran with it, and just made up their their own world. Whatever was inside this little buffalora, you know, that's all that existed, and nothing else outside of that existed. Exactly. I, I mean, just too much weird shit going on. <laughs> well, and that's the thing. Wouldn't that because the snow globe makes the outside world not exist make more sense? I think so. Because you that's kind of like a running gag through it all that he, he brings up a couple times. He's like, oh, I'm not even sure the rest of the world's world. a thing. 
Right. And then we see that it is a thing, but it's, it's not like everything ends. It's just like uncharted wilderness beyond, you know, not to sound too heavy, but you could, I think somebody else could make the argument that that's another one of those allegories or metaphors for somebody who might be dealing with a mental breakdown and not, not knowing whether they exist outside of their own mind, mm-hmm. you know, and what they're perceiving. Is it real? Is the real world actually real? You know, or is all this just a figment of my imagination? That kind of stuff. I don't know if that's what the film's saying, but you can make an argument for it. Because, I mean, he does go through, through a mental breakdown. Yeah, absolutely. I'm still not what sure what the fucking impotent stuff is supposed to be about. I don't, I don't know if that's more just like... Other than, I mean, once again, that can tie in, I think that can easily, maybe by someone other than me who's a little bit more trained in this shit, be tied into the possible serial killer angle. Yeah, I could see that. Because there's a lot, there's a lot of leanings into that aspect of what a serial killer is in this film. I'm not saying that this film is, you know, laying it out, but I mean, there's multiple murders going on by a character that well, constitutes yeah. the label. <laughs> One of the things I I noticed in some of the trivia when I was looking it up, here's the other thing that makes me think that he might be Franco, is that the translation isn't quite engineer. Mm. Everyone keeps calling him an engineer. And he's like, no, that's not what I am. And they're like, you work here, right? Then you're an engineer. Engineer sounds like the Italian word that they were using. The Mm. more accurate translation is something closer to accountant. Ah, okay. Yeah, that that's completely different than engineer. Right. So if you think that they're calling him an accountant because of where he works, and then you think back to the one scene where we see Franco at work. That makes a lot more sense. Like he lived a dull life and a meaningless job in a fucking, in an office doing all this paperwork. And he has time to stew. And you know from the little bits of conversation, like it's already set up that his marriage is failing from the conversations you hear between Francesco and Franco. Right. So him lusting after these other women would also possibly make sense. Yes. There might be a little bit of a hint in the fact that these other women are in some way engaged Uh with somebody else. You know, you could say... Lusting after these could, unattainable women, in a way? I think you could make an argument that these women are also, like, manifestations of maybe what these mayors were chasing after, like these secretaries and these prostitutes and what have you. So you could say the, the, those variations of she mm-hmm. are kind of what he's chasing after or, like, maybe aspiring to because that's what these guys in power are doing, the, the mayor and the townspeople, what have you. Yeah. Perhaps. I don't know. The way this film is presented, I don't think you can say 100% for certain any of these things, but I think we're kind of on to something, right? Like, this all tracks. I think, there's, I think there's enough to intimate towards some of these feelings. And I think the Franco route, I can buy into it because this film is wackadoodle enough to fit that kind of, like, mental instability. You know, the is this guy projecting? Is all this a projection of this person's imagination? You know? Well, and it's almost I like a... That. It reminds me of Big Trouble in Little China, mm. where the joke is that Kurt Russell's the sidekick. Yeah, yeah. 
I'm sorry if you guys have never, I don't know who's listening to this. I don't know if you've ever put that together oh, while watching Big God. Trouble before, but the <laughs> ultimate joke of Big Trouble, if you've never realized it, is that Kurt Russell is the sidekick who thinks he's the main character. Absolutely. He's just a character involved. <laughs> he got caught up in all that shit. So this would kind of be like, this is a serial killer movie where we only see his inner thoughts about how he actually perceives the world. Yeah. That is very interesting. If that is the case, because that's, that gives a whole new take on, you know, what, what a serial killer's thinking or a weirdly dark what, humorous take, right? Like, yes. Like, is this really what this guy is perceiving? You know, like, if it is, man, it's it's the most bonkers things I've ever envisioned a serial killer would imagine. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like, like he, he has this personality difference between a childlike person like Nagi, just very simple, likes the simple things, you know, and somebody who's kind of brooding, existential, even though he's not really smart, you know, mm-hmm. like you're saying, he has these these quote unquote philosophical existential thoughts about life and death, but they're really kind of simplistic in nature. You some know? of them are cool. Uh, like he recites some poems oh, like yeah. and shit that are dope. No, that's, that's really dope, but that's not his thoughts that he's just refraining shit. Right. <laughs> you know, I still think like if you're looking at the Franco character, man, I, I think it's solid. I think you can read into that, man. It, it I would explain like how much it works out. But <laughs> it would explain how like these beautiful women are always suddenly so taken with him because they're not, mm. but that's how he sees it. Right. right, or, right. And that would make or sense even too, what like, he the hopes. Whole, yeah. Like that's, that's the whole thing about fantasy too, right? Is, is you're creating a fantasy and on how you would perceive them coming on to you and all this other stuff. And, you know, and you're going counter to what, other people like his wife might think he's impotent, you know, and shit like that. Hence that whole impotent narrative, you know, like the townspeople say he's he's impotent. Perhaps his wife thinks he is too. Hence why he's, you know, their their marriage is falling apart. He doesn't want to fuck her. He's wanting to chase the, after these other women. And he wants to he wants to feel real love. And even after he proves that he's not impotent, he then is expected to pay, and and so then he lashes out again. Yeah. Or you're like, oh, this the mayor did what he did with this lady and we can still be friends, but you know, I'm going to marry the mayor and you know, like Mm -hmm. there's resentment, there's a resentment and soul crushing kind of aspect to that kind of relationship, you know? (laughs) And then, you know, like you said, you feeling like being used, you get what you want, but you still have to pay for it. You know, it's, it's kind of empty, that kind of side of, of a relationship, I suppose, you know, he's already had his thrill, but he still has to pay for it. And it's kind of, I don't know, vapid. Well, and you have like the childlike nature of Nagi, which if Nagi is also part of him, kind of uh-huh. intimates what he might have done with some of his early victims. Yes, I think you're right there as well. There is a very sexual side. It, it goes from innocence to very lustful and carnal, you know, mm-hmm. which is all which is all a part of I mean, it's human nature, don't get me wrong, but if you're following the, the serial killer motif, there's some inner dealings there, too, with sexuality. But you have her, like, kind of weirdly being, her being, in this case, like, the mayor's daughter's head with no right, Val- Valentina, yeah, yeah. 
Um, <laughs> both being not treated sexually, but instead romantically because they're in love. You know what I mean? And like, it's, it's, exactly. a, it is truly a much more pure, even though it's fucking wild as shit and makes no sense. It does come across as a much more pure relationship than any of the other interactions in this movie. Very, very, yeah, innocent, pure, once again, kind of childlike, you know. And he's more enamored than anything. And he's even put her on a pedestal of sorts by putting her in the TV, which his favorite thing. Her father even comments on, What are you doing on TV? He doesn't treat exactly. her as being a disembodied head in a TV because we're <laughs> in the fantasy world. What yeah. are you doing on TV? <laughs> and I think that's what adds to some of the, you, you could argue, absurdity, surrealism to this film. You know, moments like that where it's more comedic than it is realistic. You know, in a realistic, even, this is all hypothetical. <laughs> but yeah. realistically, somebody will be in, in horror and shock of what they're witnessing. If you ever came across, like, instead of having, like, like you were just saying, what are you doing on TV? <laughs> you yeah. know, you're not saying that, man. You're not saying that. Well, it's like, what are you doing on TV? Da, 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 da. That scene plays out. She ends up killing her father so that they can be together. But Francesco comes in and ends up offing her as well because she was starting to stink. Yeah. And, and I then, but then it ends. It's not natural. <laughs> I mean, it still ends, though, with like them being having their picture taken with the mayor's body and Nagi still holding her head by the mayor's fucking campaign manager. Yeah, it's crazy. It's all supposed to be for a photo op in the first place. And that's where that scene ends and it never comes back and there's never any consequences or anything. It's super fucking surreal. Exactly. It's like any other circumstance, like anything remotely close to that, there's going to be people involved. He's <laughs> not like, what the fuck just happened? It's not super gone into, but you have like the fact that it even ends that way is almost like, is this like a little bit of a desire for fame as well or notoriety? Mm, I think so, because think about what he says too. he says to the inspector when the, when the inspector comes right down, because mm -hmm. the inspector was there earlier. He told the inspector, he's like, no one's going to believe you because he's like, you can check the dental marks. He's like, they're not going to match me or Nagi. He's like, so who did it? He's like, I don't know. It's like, it's just, it's not <laughs> yeah. going to be the first time you, you had an open case. Right. So that's, man, this was kind of odd. I didn't think we'd be going this route with the story, but I like it. Like Dude, the every, still around. I do want to say every, the way we're talking about this movie makes it seem way, way darker than it comes across on screen. I know. And it's, and that's the cleverness of it because this film has a very artful and sometimes whimsical Sometimes very, like, different tones. Sometimes it's very bright. Sometimes it's super dark, you know? So tonally, it shifts on you. The other thing playing into where I'm like, at this point, I've kind of talked myself into thinking it's just Franco as a serial killer. So I'm just going to roll with that for the rest of this. Um, the other thing that <laughs> like played it. into like that it. for me is the meeting with death. Okay. And to me, that reads as, like, a serial killer escalation moment. Mm. They have to escalate. They've been, they've been living in the fantasy, which you can say is just killing the zombies. These are already dead people. It doesn't matter if he kills them. Right. In his head, he's just fucking 
offing people left and right, whatever. They're just zombies. They're just names. And then death is like, yo, these are fucking my people. If you don't want them coming back, why don't you just go shoot the living in the head? Because then they don't come back. <laughs> yep. And it reminded me of like some fucking son of Sam type shit, having the fucking dog tell you to go kill people. And it reminded me of like frailty, honestly. Mm, yeah. I mean, not quite in the same way. Like he's not killing people because no, so they're, uh, they're demons in disguise or whatever, but. but no, you're, you're receiving a message and you know, it, it has an, an importance to you or it can. And so that's the like, all right, like killing zombies just isn't cutting it anymore. I got to go kill a person. Here we go. Escalation. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting because once again with the, like the mental thing, if you in your mind you can you can kill people all you want, right? And that's it's good as it gets there, but yeah, if you really want to do it, shoot somebody real, shoot somebody for real. <laughs> like, oh my god, damn, that's crazy. Well, and it's kind of just like it's justifying it, right? It's like I'm just keeping them from coming back as a zombie. Yeah. I mean, it, it, you're right. And they can that narrative, that context in their mind, they're justifying what they're doing. I don't know that like that's that's heavy, but that's I mean, I, I could see you reading it. Well, and, then, and you have one more moment with death towards the very end of the film. Hey, where are you going? <laughs> Look, where are you going without understanding the difference between life and me? Right. Me being death. And so he goes to find the difference between life and him and that's the scene where we almost see him commit suicide mm. oh shit you know what it makes me man god damn it that makes me wonder too like if that's the case like mm -hmm. him trying to commit suicide but not and, and instead going in that coma he might be playing all this shit in a loop in his mind while he's just <laughs> you know? there right right and that's kind of a metaphor for him not committing to actually committing suicide. Like he still couldn't go through it, you know, because at the end he doesn't go through it. Francesco that is right. You know, because Nagi comes out of it. So he's still Nagi and Francesco and whatever else is floating on in his head. You know what I mean? These, these characters, these split personalities, if you will, are just, you know, just different stages of who he is. Wow. Damn. That's heavy. See, See, this is why I'm like, oh, shit, I think Franco's just a fucking serial killer. <laughs> no, I, I like that, dude. I like that because we only see him like what once we see him once in the office. We hear him on the phone. And then the last time we see him is in the hospital. And, and even that shit's weird. Like he shoots a nurse. Oh, first he shoots a nun. Mm -hmm. Then he shoots the doctor. The shit he says, too, is outlandish. Like the doctor's like, what is she doing on the floor? He's like, oh, she's praying. <laughs> Yeah, it's like, oh, well, OK, so in that case and just like steps over and starts it on his <laughs> spiel. Yeah, and then he shoots the doctor because of some shit he says. And then the nurse comes in and she's yeah, she's all frantic. And then he shoots her, too. And then he's still trying to get it. Who are you? So, yeah, it's, it's wild, man. That's crazy. But I, I like that, that reading of it. You know, maybe he's not wrecking like who, who the fuck am I? Who are you? Mm hmm. Like maybe he doesn't recognize that side of him anymore. I don't know. I don't know about it. I think some of these questions and these things that are happening are just, you know, like I'm just going to throw this something in here and not have it make any sense whatsoever. I think there's there's a meaning to these things. Shit. I think I've brought up everything that I can bring up to sort of like 
back up my idea that it's just Franco as a serial killer. But like, is there any like some of these scenes are fucking wild? Is there anything that we haven't talked about that we should really fucking bring up? Because well, I mean, there's some trivia and stuff, of course. One scene I really do like because it is artistic and it's kind of like at first it's odd, like why would they be doing this? Is the whole scene in the ossuary where they're kissing she and Francesco? That is right, and that whole scene is supposed to mimic a painting called the lovers by uh, Rene Marguerite, mm. which is like, okay, that's kind of, that's interesting. Then that, that makes sense too. I also read too, that that was a real ossuary, uh, ossuary. And I guess the guy who was responsible for some of the set design and whatnot had to remove some of the bones, mm. you know, so they could film down there. But he later returned them because he felt like there was some bad mojo going on with spirits and all that shit. I think I briefly read too that that cemetery, I mean, it's a real cemetery, but I, I almost read, or, or I think I read that they had to buy rights to it so that they could use it and like kind of do it up a little bit. Mm. I'm trying to think of some other things outside of that. Uh, even within the film, I want to talk about. Um, the grave lights uh, were cool. Grave lights were really cool. I mean, you could see some of the strings that they were attached to it is kind of funny, but. I still like the effects, though. Some of the stuff that you see, you don't necessarily see in film. You know, stuff like that. I did like the use of the moonlight. It's not like we haven't seen that before. But it makes things feel kind of fantastical. You know, you're you're adding that fantasy element to it. It, it strangely, maybe even coincidentally, reminded me a little bit of uh, Vampire Hunter D. Bloodlust when we saw him in the moonlight like that. Oh, but right. She and, you know, she and Francesco kissing. I was like, okay, that that definitely feels like something that you would see in a comic book or an animation or something of that nature, you know? Uh, it was fucking wild as shit that she wanted to get it on on her fucking <laughs> husband's grave. And I fucking loved the gag where she's like, well, he, he always understood and we always shared everything with each other. So he wouldn't mind. And the camera pans <laughs> over and like his pictures changed and he's like, oh, Dude, what the fuck is going I'm on? I'm glad you noticed that because the picture does change on his uh, tombstone, mm-hmm. depending on what's going on. I noticed that too. I was like, that is, if you're not paying attention, you maybe some of those jokes won't land or what they're saying won't land, but you're right. If you pay attention to the, his picture, his, his face changes depending on what the fuck is going on. <laughs> I like that. I thought that was clever. Even the wraparound with the old lady who's like the visitor of the cemetery. Uh, first time through, I didn't notice when she passed and they showed her gravestone and she did take his advice and use both pictures. I thought that was actually kind of kind of sweet. Yeah, I was like, that's that's a cool kind of wraparound, you know, because she kind of, go, I wouldn't say go missing, but, you know, she's just kind of whatever. And then that last thing you hear or see you know, is Nagi taking care of her tombstone, which is her need. So, yeah, there's stuff like that. Just the bizarreness, too, like. How many films do you know of? I can I can maybe name one other, but how many films do you know of where a guy exhumes a grave and then carries on a relationship with its severed head <laughs> down in uh, I don't know this sub basement? <laughs> I don't know. That was I, I thought mean, that was so strange. I mean, I that can think so of a couple odd. that where it's not just the head, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm just like that is. Holy shit! I was I was waiting to hear what you had to say about stuff like that with this film. Just some of the imagery and the bizarreness and honestly, some of the like goofiness. that shit was weird and wild. But like I said, that was actually maybe the most touching, wholesome relationship that's shown in this movie. 
And it, so I was really actually is. kind of bummed when she got shot in the head. Like I liked seeing Nagi happy. I agree with that. And there was a pause because I was trying to think how I want to say this. There's something that Francesco says to Nagi. There's a thing that he says about love. You know, he talks about your first love. He's like, you know, that one, he, he doesn't want Nagi, I guess, to hold on to that one. He says, the one that you want to hold on is the last one. You know, so you could read it too. as like, these are the different stages of, of love. Like mm-hmm. your first love, when you lose it, it's it's a, it's a big one. And in this case, Nagi, because he's so innocent and pure, that was, quote unquote, his first love. Maybe not his first love per se, but the feeling of having a first love. You know, the things that you do, putting her on a pedestal and, and that kind of stuff that goes along with it. Well, and it's then, also showing a little bit of like hypocriticalness, right? Because he was just oh, bitching yeah. for half the movie before that point about how he had accidentally killed the only woman he loved. Of course, <laughs> you know, so of course there is, of course there, and there's going to be contradictions like that, regardless with human nature. And I think the conflicting thing with, you know, the, the serial killer thing going on too, if you want to read into that, like there's going to be some conflicting ethics and morality, if you want to call them that, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, so I could see that. I could see the, the reason why there is contradiction there. Do you think the incompetence of the police is more of an offshoot of the surrealism, or do you think it's poking fun mm. at the incompetence of police and giallos? Ooh, I could say yes to both of those. <laughs> honestly, honestly, I think it, it, maybe even just in general too, like the just incompetence of police game. in fucking horror movies. Yeah, that in you know, sometimes in real life too. Um, yeah, no shit. I mean, especially when it comes to ch- the chase and serial killers. If we're excuse me, if we're still going to use that, you know, narrative. But yeah, I, giallos, horror films, real life, and like for instance, for instance, this is the big one. This the smoking gun, if you will, is <laughs> Fran- Francesco literally having a fucking gun in the staircase, and what does the inspector tell him? He's like. Oh, good. You have a gun so you can protect or defend yourself, you know? And he's basically like, everybody's run away. And he confesses. He's like, you know, it's me. I'm the one. I'm the killer. And when he yells it, it's just suddenly an empty staircase and nobody reacts and it just moves on to the next scene. Right. And no one really cares. Exactly. Exactly. And that's probably how he's feeling inside. Like, he wants to be known. Like, this is why he's doing these outlandish things, you know? Ah, I think you hit the nail on the head with this one, dude. <laughs> also, I wanted to say that that scene was very, it felt very American Psycho to me. Yes. It's very artistic, too. I don't think the use of the overhead, you know, shot and mm-hmm. the symmetry with the staircase and the way that it's black and white as well. Well, and kind of the broken symmetry. Well, yes, 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 yes. It's not like perfect symmetry. You're right. Mm-hmm. There is broken symmetry there. Um, And it's kind of like... Fractured. Yeah. It's kind of fractured and slightly offset with the way it's framed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And w- which lends right back to maybe this person's state of mind. Uh, <laughs> dude, I <laughs> I didn't like almost actually gag, but I definitely almost gagged when <laughs> fucking not Nagi puking on her, but her then getting up off the ground oh, just yeah, fucking soaked in puke. And jumping straight on fucking Claudio's fucking 
bike with him and just like hugging close to his back. Oh God, that's so gross. I'm glad you said that. Cause I noticed that too. I was like, man, this is so fucking outlandish right now. No, that's just the dude rolling up on his bike, but her literally getting up from getting puked on and then jumping on the bike and hugging him like that. <laughs> that is so gross. No way would I ever ask a girl to hop on my bike after seeing that. <laughs> I don't think so. Yeah, no, I'm be like, girl, how about like we just go wash you off real quick first? Dude, here no, you can uh, walk beside me. I'll I'll keep slow. I forgot how I mean, it's not graphic, but I forgot that they showed her getting her head ran over when they get in that accident. Like the oh, bikers. Yeah. yeah, that was kind of that gnarly. was pretty that was pretty gnarly. I was like, holy shit. Yeah, there was a few moments that kind of caught me off guard because I hadn't seen this in a while. But I'm glad I was like, all right, good. They actually they went there with a few of these things. Actually, it wasn't the greatest effects, but it was still pretty decent, man, for what they pulled off. A lot of the zombie attacks are almost more in like the slapstick humor kind of vein. Like Absolutely. we've barely brought up the fact that they silly. kill a shit ton of kid zombies, but. Oh, do they? The scouts, that was hilarious. And the male nun. Yeah. I mean, come on, dude. That was hilarious. Uh, that one was good. Another kind of, I don't want to say that it's its not funny, but another scene that's kind of interesting. And it, I think it's also the scene where he trails off in the conversation with Franco is where it seems like so many zombies are coming in on Francesco and Nagi. There's like a particular scene more than normal, you know? Oh, and he's just um, kicking back and just offing them one by one as they pop in the door and he's taking pot shots yeah. out the window and shit. I actually kind of... Yeah, and he's scene. just... <laughs> he just carrying on with with Franco and eventually I think he just kind of dozes off. And that's where when he first, it quote unquote, first kills like seven townspeople or whatnot. Mm-hmm. And then the inspector comes by and, it's, and it starts that whole kind of cat and mouse game if you want to call it that with the inspector <laughs> the cat and mouse game with a fucking deaf dumb blind cat <laughs> fucking hell right the mouse being thrown like right at its face it's crazy man so i mean there's there's clever little things going on in this film that i i i have to admit you know sometimes when you watch films one two three times you're not picking up on things like this but saying them out loud and thinking about how it's being played out. This makes a lot more sense to me if you read into this narrative. I think it makes all of she's actions across all of her incarnations make a lot more sense. Without a doubt. Especially if it's pretty much just all part of his fantasy. Yes. Yeah, he's still chasing that. You could say maybe the first victim or or a prototype of whatever he's chasing after. Yeah, it's like he's both chasing that first victim but chasing what it should have made him feel like because it uh, didn't end up yeah. with him being whole. Precisely, dude. He didn't no, get to keep her. <laughs> he didn't yeah. get to keep her. Theoretically, he might have uh, kept her for a little bit until she started to sink like stink like Nagi's head. Man, that makes you wonder too about that whole like quote unquote cemetery man, you know? Mm-hmm. Like maybe that maybe he wasn't, you know, literally running a cemetery, but some of the actions that he was doing were akin, like, you know, digging a grave, digging, exhuming bodies, the backup, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Shit like that. And then the zombies, if you will, are just ghosts or, you know, his victims kind of coming back to haunt him, if, if you want to call it that. 
I don't even know if the zombies are his own victims. I think it's mostly his fantasies of pre. pre Maybe, yeah, like killing. Yeah, I think that's probably more logic <laughs> if you want to call it that. I know I say that a lot if you will call that because I don't know. What, I don't know what else to call it, man. Yo, there's no logic to this. <laughs> <laughs> I really don't know what else to call it. Like I'm, we're sitting here trying to throw meaning all over this, but it's still extremely subjective when you actually watch this movie. Yeah, exactly, man. But that's what makes it fun because somebody else and groups of people else might be reading this entirely different from what we're talking about right now and probably think we're full of shit. And I'm okay with that. But I think we we're making some valid arguments. Well, I mean, it works on its face as just a surreal story. Oh, yes, that too. Just you don't have to read into it very deep. It's just a very surreal in the moment story. And I think it's the on its face version where this is I mean, this is a rom zom com. I almost feel too, it's a bit fairy tale ish, like an adult fairy tale. It's still kind of dark in the end. It but, really is. But that's fine. Fairy tales can be kind of dark. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, if you read them, they tend to be a little heavier than they, they're implied. Shit, no, this was a good fucking movie, dude. Yeah, I'm glad. I, and it's one, too, that's, you know, we've talked about kind of here and there, and it, it pops up on lists, and for a reason, and it's one of those, those films, too. It's very cultish. At its time of release, it got really good press. Uh, something I, I read to that that was really interesting is there was an American distributor who wanted to pick up this film with the uh, impetus that Matt Dillon had to play the role of Francesco. Oh, you know what? I could see that. They don't look so dissimilar that I can't, like, I can understand that wanting to to do that. Yes. And I, I agree too, like, but in an alternate universe, like that, it's not too far-fetched having Matt Dillon play that role, dude. I think he, I don't know, maybe in, during that time period, 93. Yeah, I mean, During that time period, you know, it would have been a little bit weirder, I think. Yeah. He was still, I would say he was still more mainstream then rather than what he's been doing mm. lately. Yeah, because I don't think very many people, probably outside of England or the United Kingdom, knew about Rupert Everett no. prior to this film. Because I had mentioned he kind of got more fame after this film. Honestly, and in some ways, he's almost like these days, because he doesn't act as much, almost as famous for like some of his activism and stuff that he's done too. Hmm. Solid point, dude. I was reading into yeah. that a little bit. I, I don't know how active he is, but I know he's outspoken <laughs> about the, the stuff that he does care about. So. That's really cool. So I didn't know that. I haven't read that much into it, but I think that's really cool. Oh, here's here's something. Just reading. You, anybody can do this. It's not like I'm pulling this from any uh, cryptic source, but apparently the Returners, you know, the undead. Oh yeah, yeah. And there there is a scene that makes total sense of this theory too. Is the uh, Mandragola roots in the cemetery, or what's causing those Returners to get their energy to come back from the grave? Oh, okay. And I was like, okay, that's kind of cool. Okay, okay, I like that. Um, I'm trying to see if there's anything else that I thought was interesting in this. Oh, you know, uh, Tangerine Dream, the uh, musical group, they were supposed to compose a soundtrack originally, but they had to drop out because something else popped up. I wonder what that was, but that would have been interesting. Uh, soundtrack's still pretty good, though. There's, like, the whistle he does, mm, mm -hmm. Francesco, that is, where 
Valentina actually sings. I don't know if those are you know real lyrics to a song or whatnot, but she actually put some lyrics on that melody, which I thought was interesting because it once again that could lead into like maybe that was something you know <laughs> a woman that he desired was singing or whistled, and that was a refrain that he does. Oh right. Oh um. I don't know. Shit. Perhaps. <laughs> I just okay. There's also a scene. I guess I want to bring this up. There was one scene that I actually got really fucking tense with. I thought they did a great job when she came back as a returner and they start making out because it was almost like the it's like it's almost like the bomb under the fucking kitchen table. Right. You're like, when is this going to go off? When is she actually going to take a bite of him? Because it looks like it's going to happen about five times before it actually does. And every yeah, like time you're like sitting there like it's lip. <laughs> and you're like tensing up a little bit, like when's she gonna take a chomp? When's she gonna take a chomp? When's she gonna take a chomp? No, you're right. There's that tension, that almost dread of, yeah, when is this shit gonna happen? Because you know it's gonna fucking happen. Yeah, at that point, like there's no way it's not gonna happen. Just fucking look at her. Yeah, dude. Come on. They did it well and I'm not mad at it. <laughs> you know, and then once again, you get Nagi off of her. So I, I think that's an interesting tell in mm-hmm. that moment, too, is having Nagi off she. And then later on, not much later on, but Francesco offing Valentina. Right. You know, so they're both offing a loved one, if you will, of their respective characters. Mm-hmm. You know, and... I feel like too, it's it's one of those metaphors or allegories for that cycle of love and death and life in general, you know, these emotions and feelings that come along with all of that stuff. I don't know why this sticks out so much to me, but I think it's also interesting to note that both of those killings, I guess, because they're already undead, are done from a practical standpoint that one of them is overlooking because of love. Mm-hmm blinded by love there there's no actual malice going on with either one it's just no this you you can't just let this shit go on like this you just have to stop this and move on to the next one yeah it is very abrupt very very abrupt like she's attacking you and about to kill you bro we we have to fucking kill her yeah like there's no prolonging the inevitable it's just like boom there's the end of that he knows like we're not going to sit here and throw jabs at her She's attacking us. And also, like, bro, she's getting so stinky, you can smell her fucking half a mile away. Yeah. Yeah. So, dude, once again, I I did not think this would be the conversation, but I'm glad it is because it it makes this film more interesting when you follow this kind of narrative. And I think there's enough signs, too, to kind of point that out. Even, like, why would there be gunplay and, you know, random deaths and... You know, like he, his character's bullied in a way too. Mm-hmm. You know, not just Nagi, even Francesco, even Fra- yeah, Franco. <laughs> you know, all iterations that would make sense in the threes, maybe. Like that's a number I think that pops up a little bit. There's three different incarnations of she, Franco. If you want to follow that, Francesco, Nagi, and Franco. Mm-hmm. That's the three there. You know, it's just, it's just it's interesting use of symbolism and, and you know, like I said, metaphors and allegory in this film. Very clever, man. 
I think I've mostly said my piece on this one. <laughs> yeah, I know. Without me making a, a larger word salad than I already have, man. It's a fun film. I highly recommend it for people who like films that make you think outside the box. Yes, it's going to be surreal and maybe even abstract at times for some people. But it's a really fun one, man. And not only that, like I'm familiar with this director. I've already mentioned he's an actor just as well. So I've seen him in some other films. But don't expect the church or the sect to be anything like this. This is a completely different take okay. on on kind of like the genre too, like the Italian horror genre. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, it does feel like a little like Fulci, but it's not Fulci. And no. it feels, you know, sometimes it, it can feel a little Argento, but it's not Argento. And that's good. That's a good thing. I think that's a good thing. And there's well, a reason shit. why it has a cult status. At times it feels a lot like fucking American Psycho and that movie wasn't even out yet. So I know it's crazy. And it makes me wonder how much it's influenced some other films as well, because like I say, it's not something I haven't seen before. And some, so I think it's some of the narratives and what have you, but it kind of preceded a, a few things that tackled some of these subjects. You already said American Psycho. This came out, what, eight, seven, eight years before that. Mm-hmm. something like that so yeah it's interesting man this this someone is it, it's heralded for a reason and i'm glad we tackled it and i think it's a good introduction to some of the stuff that this director has done just because it did remind me of it when does this come out in relation to dead alive is it about the same time Ooh, see dead alive came out at 92 so not too far from it and this came out in 94 but i think it was made in 93 they shot i think they filmed it in 93 yeah, yeah, yeah. Huh. So not too far removed. But, you know, it's, uh, it shows. It's kind of interesting. I, I don't know if it was a trend or just. Yeah, I don't know. You know, having more of a, maybe having more of an independence in filmmaking then, too, because you had a lot of independent distributors and labels and stuff that picked up films like this and could finance films like this. Like, this wasn't a major studio film or anything like that. It, it had a lot of different distributors and production companies, I should say, mm-hmm. that funded this film, you know, because A, we already talked about uh, Salavi with writing the, the novel and, and the, the fame with Bill and Dog and stuff like that. So they already had a name there. Some of these people are already well known because of their work with Argento. So it had enough interest to where, like I said, these guys tackled it. And I think they did a pretty damn decent job. So... Let's see. Next time will be our Halloween episode. Are we already there? Yeah, it's crazy to think. But here we are. Another Halloween season. Another anniversary for us as well. That's right. Another anniversary. We should say that if you're not a member of our Patreon, this is the Halloween episode, right? Yeah, it's not a bad one considering cemeteries and Halloween kind of go hand in hand. So, like, this is the one you would get that week if you want to hear our actual Halloween episode before. Oh, I guess you don't get a chance now. Like it's too late. If you're listening to this episode, you can't sign up before. Oh, you could sign up and get it the same week though, right? Yeah, you could. I think you could. All right. So, just right. so if you're if you're currently listening to this and it's still before Halloween and you want to hear our Halloween episode, sign up for our Patreon, patreon.com slash fried squirms. That being said, our next episode we're not going to talk about just a single horror movie. No, we've got some fun stuff lined up. We're going to talk about fucking horror movies we love because Halloween is the time for horror movies we love. Yes. Hell yes.
So we're going to come up with a few ways to to bring up a number of different movies, and we are super looking forward to that. So, you know, like subscribe and all that shit. But for this time, I'm Tyler. I'm Danny. Fried Squirms. Out. 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 <laughs> oh, yeah, dude. Hi, everybody. Tyler here. If you like the podcast, please hit subscribe however you're listening to us right now. Also, if you could rate and review us however you're listening to us, or preferably over on Apple Podcasts, that'd be super cool as the entire world is ran on algorithms and we want to be all up in them. Uh, we highly appreciate it whenever you tell all your friends about us. If you have any suggestions, comments, questions, want us to put eyes on your current independent horror project, you can always contact us, squirmcast at gmail.com, or you can contact us through our website, www.friedsquirms.com. Scroll through our entire back catalog there, or click the links up at the top as we are part of the Earverm Podcast Network, uh, and would love it if you went and checked out some of our sister shows. Uh, The easiest way to keep track of things across the entire network is to go over to that website. That's earverm.com, E-A-R-V-V-Y-R-M.com. You can search for us across all the social medias. If you type in Fried Squirms, we should be what pops up. I'm not going to give you all those ads. So with all of that in mind, we'd love to hear from you. Until next time, peace.